Good morning. You may remain standing for the reading of the word. It's good to see you in the house of the Lord, especially if you're visiting. Glad to have you. We are in the book of Hebrews. We're about halfway through. We're in chapter 6, and we pick up where we left off last week there in verses 11 and 12. Now hear now the word of the Lord. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that endures into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. The preacher, the exhorter, that wrote this book is trying to convince his audience of the primacy and the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. These were religious people in their background, quite faithful in a lot of ways, but he was showing them that once we've come to Christ, we've come to the final word, we've come to the fulfillment of the promises. We've come to the hope that we have in salvation. And so he uses a picture here that's pretty interesting. He says, we have an anchor. There is a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. You'll recall, and I'll bet you a dollar you don't recall, and that is that early in the chapter, he talked about us drifting away from the faith. And the imagery that was used there was that of a boat or a vessel on the water, subject to every wind of doctrine and just sort of gently passing by. It wasn't so much that the people were making a hardcore, adamant, demonstrative denial of Christ, but it was that they were drifting away, drifting on beyond, not being anchored in anything. And so now he talks about that anchor and he calls it an anchor of the soul. And I'm going to take that pretty literally and personally and probably you should too. This is a message that is 
that is wide in its scope and tells us an enormous amount of things about the great plan of salvation and the, the nature of God in his covenant and the work of Jesus, our high priest, who's as it says here, is entered in behind the curtain. And we'll talk more about that as we go through the next few chapters because it'll talk about the high priestly ministry of Jesus entering into the heavenly holy of holies, into the throne room of God, not just the holy of holies in the tabernacle or the temple, but the holy of holies in the very presence of God in heaven and the work that he does. And that'll be uh, talked about in great detail. In fact, that's what he's trying to do is to kind of get them up to speed. You remember at the end of chapter five, he wanted them to go on to understand this idea of Melchizedek as a high priest. And you'll notice in the very end of our passage here that it talks about having become a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, speaking of Christ. And chapter 7, verse 1, the very next verse says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham. So we'll talk about that. He's trying to get us up to speed to understand the order of priesthood that is Christ. The order of priesthood is a priesthood that was, that was confirmed with an oath. The Lord swear he will give an oath that thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Speaking, of course, of Christ who would fulfill this great order. This was an order of priesthood that was on the level of the Abrahamic. They were contemporaries. While Abraham was, was living in the land of promise, the people of, of the, uh, basically of both the north and the south, it was kind of a world war if you read about it, and they went to battle and when they came back they offered tithes and offerings to a priest, the superior priest of the land who had a mounted fortress. And there in Salem, which became Jerusalem, was this priest of the Most High God, Melchizedek. And Abraham paid tithes to him. They had a communion meal together. There's a lot of things we'll say about it. I'm going to refrain from going into the glorious details of that, of that encounter that Abraham had. But it showed that Abraham was called and God made a covenant and swore an oath. And on an equal footing we have the priesthood of Melchizedek where God swore and with an oath of this particular priesthood. The priesthood of Levi, the Levitical priesthood, the priesthood of Aaron and Moses descended from Abraham and was a derivative and temporary priesthood in so many ways, but it was typical. It typified and pointed to and pictured and announced and heralded the coming of the true high priest who was certainly in the lineage of Abraham but was after the order of Melchizedek. So all of this is being set up and the reason is is not just so we can have a real deep understanding of, of the Bible which it will help us to understand the Bible if we understand something about these, this order of Abraham's call and, and uh, sworn with an oath, Melchizedek uh, uh, being... Uh, God swearing that he would have a priest after that order, that ancient order in Christ. But it, it's personal. It's to our souls. The point is not that we can understand complicated things of biblical uh, dimensions. That's certainly important, but it is that we can be anchored, settled, solidified, secured, and our soul. And that's what he's pleading for. Notice he calls this anchor sure and steadfast. 
We've got to find a place where there is bedrock upon which to stand. There is bedrock upon which to build. There is bedrock upon which to live. Jesus taught the parable that the one who builds his house upon the sand sees destruction, but those that are built upon the rock, the solid rock, have legitimate and operative, working, actual, practical hope. They're secure. They're steadfast. They're not moving around and being blown around with every wind of doctrine. So the, the point of all of this is to, is to stabilize and secure our, our souls by understanding the nature of this hope. And so to do that, he gives us some, a little more understanding of it. And in this particular passage, he's talking about the promise, the promise that God made to Abraham. And I'm going to sketch through it to review it. I know most of you are pretty familiar with it, but I will emphasize that the Abrahamic covenant, which is the beginning of God's salvific work that he fulfills in Christ, the beginning of all things start with the call of Abraham. And the covenant that God made with Abraham after he called him. And the thing to understand about the Abrahamic covenant, and this will make all the difference in the world if you catch it. The Abrahamic covenant was a promissory covenant, not an obligatory. A ah, couple of words. Promissory means it was a covenant based upon a promise. It was not a covenant based upon an obligation. The Mosaic covenant the covenant at Sinai was an obligatory. God says, if you do this, I'll do that. But if you fail to do it, then I will not provide this. The covenant that God made with Moses at Sinai was an obligatory covenant. The covenant that God made with Abraham was a unilateral covenant. It was the great Susan Rain covenant where the superior declares to the inferior how it's going to be, the stipulations and the terms of the, of the old covenants of that ancient world. And it's set forth pretty much in that straightforward form in the, in the pages of Genesis, how God unilaterally says, I'm going to do this, period. No matter what you do, it's not depending on you, it's not waiting on you. God says, I am going to do it. It's a pure promise. Whereas the Mosaic Covenant, the Sinai Covenant, the Covenant of the Law, the Ten Commandments, etc., was a bilateral covenant. It had two parties. God was going to do His part, and man was to do His part. And I'll mention one more thing. The obligatory covenant, that is the covenant that God made with Moses, the Ten Commandments and all of that, was a covenant God made with His people after He had redeemed them from Egypt. It was a covenant made with a redeemed people. It was how they were to live before Him in obedience and how they were to conduct themselves in every affair of life, their government, their home life, their, their marriages, and everything you can possibly imagine, their economic system. God made this with a redeemed people. He didn't give them the covenant in order that they might become redeemed. He had already redeemed them, but he pointed beyond that to an actual redemption in all of the sacrificial system that was in the Sinai covenant. God, even in the wilderness, moved beyond the Sinai covenant and made another covenant with Israel, the covenant he made at Moab. It was another promissory covenant. God said, you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to fulfill it. 
So the covenants that God made were with Abraham and the covenant that God made with his people and the descendants of Abraham was a promissory covenant. And so I'm going to suggest to you now and in a moment or two when we wrap it up that the essence of this whole matter is that we must believe and count on and trust in and hope in and lay everything we've got in the promise of God. The sheer promise of God. The mere promise of God. Nothing else. I don't know if you're like me, but I've been a believer since I was in early elementary school. And I've gone through a lot of periods of doubt over, over the years. Not so many in the last, say, 25 or 30, but there were times when, I, especially as a teenager, when, you know, sorting out so many things and in and, and early life and marriage and early career in the ministry, sorting through things. And, and I had a lot of doubts about my salvation. But I, I came to see that my doubts were doubting myself. Do I have authentic faith? Am I really believing Am I strong enough to hold on? What, what, what do I need? And it, it was focused on myself. I, I would say, I don't doubt God, I just doubt myself. God's made promises, but can I, can I take them? Can I believe them? Can I live up to them? Can I function within those promises? You know, looking at myself, looking at myself. Am I up to speed? And that's the fundamental mistake. Because believing the promises of God is getting our eyes off of ourselves and our doubts and our capacities and our incapacities and putting our eyes upon the sheer Word of God, the mere Word of God. And that's where our anchor is. It's not in ourselves. If we're looking for a security for an assurance, for, for some steadfastness, for some solid bedrock. You won't find it within your psyche. Some of you are a little more sound of mind than others. But either way, you won't find it in your own psyche and in your own soul. The anchor of your soul is outside yourself. And that's something we must always bear in mind. And that's a hard thing to, 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 to come to grips with because most of us are so self-centered. We, we focus, and our own society now makes us even more self-centered. It's all about our rights. It's all about our privileges. It's about our insights. It's about our potential. It's about our prospect and our future. Everything you hear, and, and, and often even from pulpits, focuses on you and your little soul and your little self. It's egocentric. And the Abrahamic faith is not, it's theocentric, it's God-centered and Christocentric, Christ-centered. That's why we keep pointing you to Christ. We talk about Christ. We don't spend a lot of time talking about your struggles and your doubts and your fears. And You've got them, we've got them. But the point of security is when we get the clear vision of the hope that we have in the promises of God and the finished work of Christ. And that's really where the security is. As long as you're looking at yourself, you'll never really have this kind of hope, this kind of security. 
You won't feel like you're anchored. You may feel a little stabilized from time to time, but you won't feel anchored. You've got to look beyond yourself. And the way you do that is you just simply really come to terms with what has God said? How did he do it? What's the, what's the gravity and what is the immensity of God's work? And it's found, and I'll just sketch it for you, in the call to Abraham. And I wished I had more time to do it, but we don't. we got plenty. We'll just do some things here. And they're all in the book of Genesis. Genesis is the book of beginnings. And in Genesis 12, we find the Lord, uh, the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country, which by the way, that country was Kuwait <laughs> or South Iraq, and your kindred, he was an Aramean, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So God calls Abraham to make basically a journey up the Euphrates Valley and then down across the Fertile Crescent into the land of Canaan. And I will make of you, and here's the promises God gives, I will make of you a great nation. He does that. That's fulfilled in the days of Solomon. The Bible tells us that the days of Solomon, Israel was the greatest nation on earth. An innumerable people. I will bless you and make your name great. There's the great reputation so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, God says to Abraham, will all the families of the earth be blessed. Now, the life of Abraham was an interesting one. We've sketched it several times in sermons in the past, especially when we, get, we did a series, a whole series on the people of faith out of Hebrews chapter 11. And Abraham is dealt with there. And Abraham had an incredible life of faith, but he also had a life of sin. First thing God told him is leave his family, leave his country. He didn't leave his family. He took his dad and his uncle and everybody else with him. Sinned right off the bat. And yet God kept his promise. And God kept his promise. But the ultimate fulfillment of all of this, as we've pointed out from time to time, is Christ. Christ brings about that great nation, that is the kingdom of God. All those that are in Christ are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The great nation is the Christians of the world across the centuries and across the globe. Millions and millions of believers in Jesus Christ. The great name is the name that is above every name, that is the name of Jesus the blessing is the salvation that Jesus brings in bearing the curse away by his death and bringing the blessings by his resurrection. The land is Christ. It is that place where God is and he dwells with his people and he brings us into a Sabbath rest into Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of the land, the fulfillment of the Sabbath and everything that God wanted for his people. All the blessings of Canaan faded in comparison to the blessings that are in Christ. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me go over to chapter 15. And these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision and saying, Fear not, for I am your shield and your reward will be very great. Here's the Lord reinforcing the promise some years later after the call. And Abraham says, well, Lord, I, I don't... Um, I don't even have a child. <laughs> in fact, I've got a wife now that's not even capable of having a child. What do you mean about this offspring and great nation and great, what's this all about? And Abraham says, I have a good idea. Abraham always has a better idea. He said, let's just take this faithful servant I have, Eleazar of Damascus, and let's make him my heir. Abraham would also say, my wife's not bearing any children for me, so why don't I take this 
beautiful handmaiden from Egypt, Hagar, and make her the mother of my offspring. If you want something to shake your faith, look at Abraham. Yet the Bible says that Abraham believed God. And that's what we'll see in the next, in the next passage. As he went over here, um, the Lord says, this shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and the number of stars. Are you able to number them? Then he said, you, so shall your offspring be. He showed him the stars, the density and the immensity of space and all the stars. He said, that's what your great name. He don't even have one child yet. And God, you talk about having to believe God. And, and the Bible says, here was a good time for Abraham to question the whole thing. Wasn't it? Really, this was a good time for Abraham to kind of, he'd been at this a long time. At this point, about 75 years, he'd been following the Lord. And now he, he hears all of this and listen. So shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. When God spoke of the offspring. Paul says in Galatians that God preached the gospel to Abraham. What's the center of the gospel? The seed, the fulfillment, Christ. God preached Christ to Abraham. That, that's some good preaching right there. Coming from God directly, the mouth of the word of God, centered in Jesus Christ. In fact, that's what preaching ought to be. Come directly from the mouth of God, centered in Jesus Christ. That's what Abraham heard. And he believed God. He believed God. And this is the passage over and over in the New Testament that's quoted by Paul to tell us that he had faith. That it was just the faith of Abraham. Now later on, a lot of things happen. Uh, little Isaac is born and he he's comes up to be a teenager. And you know the story probably as well as I do. But it, it, when uh, finally came, the Lord called upon Abram to take his son, his only son, and go offer a sacrifice. Because now God's going to teach Abraham not only about the lineage and about the descendant and about the family and the fulfillment of the promise, but he's going to show him what the descendant, the seed, is going to have to do. The seed of Abraham to fulfill the, the salvation that God has is going to have to become a sacrifice. He's going to be laid upon the altar. So God's given a, 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 a drama, a little piece of theater here. To Abraham, Of course, it vexes his soul because he's told to take the life of his own son and, and not just to go out and kill him, but to, but to do a ritual sacrifice in a particular place on Mount Moriah, which became the place where Jesus was crucified over about 2,000 years later. And he, he was going to be offered, and, and just as he was about to shed the blood of his only son, the Lord God stayed his hand and said, I'll provide a sacrifice. And he provided a substitute, a ram caught in the thicket, which taught the great principle of substitutionary atonement. That is, one person could die for the sins of another person, and it would be just, legal, holy, righteous, legitimate, and the salvation that flowed to that sacrifice would come to the guilty party whose sins had been borne away by the innocent sacrifice. And so, in, after that drama had taken place, the Lord uh, speaks to Abraham again, and the Lord called to Abraham a second time and said, 
By myself I have sworn. This is a quotation in the book of Hebrews. We just read it. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. You see, God swore it. He made an oath to Abraham. And as our passage says that covenants and contracts, although this is much better than a bigger than a contract, not the same as a contract at all, but, but these solemn commitments are made by oaths. And he says it's by two things in which it is impossible for God to lie. First of all, God promised it. That ought to be enough right there. But then God gave an oath. He swore to it. And it's interesting, he says he swore by himself because there was no higher one to swear to. There was no one higher. He couldn't swear by God. He was God. He had to swear by his own self. And that brings us, of course, to two or three things about God. I will briefly mention them. We call them the attributes of God. In order for God to swear by himself, there is no higher, there is no greater, there is no other by whom he could swear. He had to swear by himself. Brings to view the, the, the attribute of the aseity of God. It's a say in the Latin and it means uh, from or through one's self. In other words, it, this, this doctrine teaches us that God is the ground of his own being. That he has his existence in and through and of himself. He is self-existent. Not self-created, but self-existent. God is, and that's what he said when he introduced himself again to Moses. I am the present tense of eternality. I am that I am. And so the aseity of God comes in. And then we also have here, as mentioned, the veracity of God. That is, it is impossible for God to lie. The truthfulness. Moses told the people, God is not a man that he should lie. The psalmist says, his truth endures to all generations. The truthfulness and the faithfulness of God, that God will, whatever he says he's going to do, he will bring it to pass. If God swears, he's not going to go back on his word. If he does, he has no word. And the faithfulness of God is, is involved here too. He abides faithful. He cannot deny himself. This is the immutability of God's counsel. Paul sort of blurted it out in his theological treatise when he says, let, let God be true and everyone else a liar by comparison. Jesus is the fulfillment. He is that sheer, mere word of God that God has spoken for salvation. When God wished to save Mankind, the species, humanity, from the awful sentence of death that they had brought upon themselves by sin, he assigned it to his son. And if we look to the son, Jesus Christ, and his work and his intercession is what's going to be taught later. Not only his work on the cross, his priestly work of laying down his life as a sacrifice and presiding over a sacrifice, but his work as a high priest in a, being an intercessor, an advocate, someone that is called alongside the throne room of God to plead our case. 
I'll just tell you right now that you don't won't find a lot of hope, a lot of security in yourself. I don't care how good you are. But you will in Christ. You will if you will believe. Do just what Abraham did. Believe in the offspring. Believe in the seed. Trust that Christ has done it all for you. That's faith. Nothing else. For by grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. Ask God for it. Jesus over and over pleaded with the people to ask. And then you receive, seek and you shall find, knock. He said, you have not because you ask not. Come, receive, ask. Receive the free gift of salvation in Christ. And when you do that, God's spirit will bear witness with your spirit. And there will be a, an anchor. You'll just feel the solidity and the security and the safety of God's infallible promise attested to by an unassailable oath. God's serious about this. You should be too.